Good evening. Welcome. Thanks for coming out on this evening's a little darker than normal, right? So here we go. Things are changing. It's great to be here with you tonight. If I could just open this in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this evening, for the time we can enjoy the fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the time that we can consider your word and we can truly glory in your name. You're such a good and gracious God. We thank you for that. And I pray, God, by your grace, that you would accomplish your purposes in this service tonight. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Well, it is good to be here with you this evening. Uh, Matt asked if I'd share just a bit of my testimony. So I will do that a bit because it is hard when a guest speaker comes in and you don't know me. I mean, you have no idea who I am, right? You know I live in the mountains, maybe. I live in the mountains, now you know, okay, in Colorado. And uh, I've been in ministry for, I don't know, maybe 45 years or so. And uh, some of the guys that I actually work with today in full-time ministry and Excel Ministries are actually guys, I was their youth pastor 45 years ago. And they serve with me today in Excel Ministries, which is such a blessing. Uh, but it's hard to get a context for a person's life when they, when they share. And uh, I'm kind of passionate about things. I'm deeply concerned about the church, and I'm absolutely committed to the idea if churches would really take back their responsibility, both to share the gospel and to train men, the church would be a completely different place. And, and so I'm excited about that. But, but I think it helps people to know, not that my life has been the hardest life, because there's people here who have suffered immensely. I've talked to some of you. But my life has been one of those lives with, with some of those pretty serious bumps in the road. And, and so I'm going to try to share those briefly because I'm getting emotional and I'd hate to do that in front of you. So I'm going, to, I'm going to just try to take a deep breath and be fine. 20 years ago, my son, 18 years old, was in a tragic car accident. And, and they gave him no hope to survive. All of his major organs went through his diaphragm into his chest. His aorta was torn. His brain was torn. His girlfriend had a brain injury. And we got that call late at night that says, you need to come. And, and you, you know, the, he's a pastor today. So there's a good news, just so you know. But they gave him no hope. And they said, because his brain was torn, he will likely never know you. And we don't know what that's going to look like. And, you know, that's one of those roads when we talk about difficult things is you stand by your son's bed and he's got tubes everywhere and they're just trying to keep him alive. They go really fast to go through his back to try to repair his aorta and then try to put his organs back and then fix his diaphragm. And, and, and you go through those hard times. And so when I talk about ministering in the hospital, I just want you to know I know what that means. He was unconscious for three weeks. He was in rehab, seemed like forever. He couldn't move one foot a quarter inch. He had to learn to walk again. And so it's a long course. And you beat a lot of people. Right? By God's design. People I would have never met, but I needed to meet. We had our ICU buddies. Because the ICU he was in, nobody comes out the same. Most don't come out. And so you have opportunities for ministry. It took him months to learn to walk. If you saw him today, 
you would know he'd been in an accident. He pastors a small church in northern Colorado. It's an older church. It was when he got there. It's a bunch of young people now, but it was all older folks when he came, and he was able to tell the older folks, don't, don't tell me you can't come because you're health. I got you beat. He will suffer like his mom did the rest of his life from the accident. That will be his reality. Surgeries and, and trials of that nature. But the Lord has used him, right? Because that enhances his ministry. And praise the Lord for that. Now, he learned how to suffer from his mom, my wife. Because she had rheumatoid arthritis onset at age 13. By the time she was 18, her hands were completely crippled. By the time, 10 years ago, the Lord took her home. She didn't have a joint intact from her jaws to her toes. Nothing. So that's why I get the body of Christ when the Bible says that we need each other. Every part of the body is essential to the growth of the body. If you'd have seen my wife, you would have understood that. Because when you have those different parts that don't work, it's not right. It's just not right. And everything is complicated. But when everything works, you don't even think about the fact that you need certain parts because they work. And that's why when, when I talk about the body of Christ, I often use the testimony of my wife because she was a godly woman who didn't have a pain-free day from the age of 13 on, but she loved the Lord faithfully, never questioned him once. She did ask me one question that I thought was intriguing because she was having significant health issues and we had to choose some drugs and there was no good drug to choose. She never responded well to any medications her whole life. And so we made a decision. Then after we made the decision, the drug actually caused the electrical system of her heart to fail. So then she had to get a pacemaker. And so she just asked me this. She said, tell me, just help me to understand how God's sovereignty works. You know, I'm just trying to, because the Bible doesn't say take this drug or take that drug. or what. So just help me to know how God's sovereignty works. I'm just trying to understand that. And I said, I can answer that with one word. Perfectly, but I'm a little shady on the details. <laughs> okay, a little shady on the details, but it works perfectly. Because he could make a medication work. He could make it not work. He can do whatever he wants. All I know from my perspective is we're going to meet other doctors we wouldn't otherwise have met and we'll have opportunities for ministry that we wouldn't otherwise have had. And beyond that, only God knows. You know, even in the book of Ruth, right? Ruth, you know, the three husbands die and you see this story of Ruth and Naomi and all of that. And at the end of the day, the love story, you know, Boaz and Ruth. But you guys, they never knew what it was all about primarily because it was the lineage of the Christ child. So they saw glimpses, but they didn't see the whole thing. So 10 years ago, I still have to get to my lesson. I stood by my wife's side and watched her going to glory. What a day for her. It was her best day of her life. It was a little rough on me. But glorious. I mean, can you even imagine a glorious day? But here's what I knew. As I stood there, I knew this. My wife served well, lived well, and died well. I am obviously not finished because God has left me here. And he left me here 
because there's more work for me to do. And I want to get it done. I want to finish the work he has me for. And I will tell you, some of you have suffered a lot of loss, okay? There's a fine line between biblical grief and selfish grief. And I would not try to define that for any person because I had a struggle defining it my, for myself because I knew I could, I could be so focused on my grief that I wouldn't accomplish the work that God set before me to do. And folks, there's no time to waste. I know it's easy to just want to get out of this world, but this world needs us to be here right now. And we need to make a difference in the name of Christ. I'm married today. I'm married to a gal that was single her whole life and was very good friends with my dear wife. She loved my wife, which is great, because I can talk about my first wife and my second wife. It's confusing to people, you know? And how long have you been married? Well, I've been married about 40-some years, 31 to soon. You know, and people are like, it's an awkward life. It's different. But in God's providence, that's what he's done for me and provided to me. But um, maybe that gives you a perspective of why I value life and the time we have here. And it concerns me that, that we waste so much of our time on things that are not of eternal value. And, you know, if you get to the end of the week and you can't look back on anything that was of eternal value during the week, it's like, what are we doing? I mean, what are we doing? We are the light in this world. And when Christians don't want to talk about the gospel because it's going to be uncomfortable, it's like, what are we thinking? I mean, who cares if it's uncomfortable? This world is desperately in need of the gospel. Desperately. And you guys, we've already seen so many churches that have completely abandoned the gospel. I mean, they just abandoned the gospel. And, and I'm convinced if our evangelical churches don't get really serious about training the next generation, then what you see here now will not be here in 30 or 40 years. But if we are committed to fulfilling the Great Commission, to training our young people for ministry, equipping them for the battle, I think it will make a massive difference. Just a massive difference. And I think it's desperately needed. It's needed here, you guys. It's needed around the world. What we've done here by way of bad habits, we've exported. And it's a, it's a big problem. So anyways, so that... That gives you a little bit of perspective on my life. If you want to see me in real time, come to Colorado. We have room. Well, not for all of you at once, but if you came systematically, we have room. We would love to have you. We do live up in the mountains where you got to be able to breathe, okay, to get up there because it's thin, and, uh, and it's a beautiful part of Colorado, and that's where I serve in a small church. I participate. I don't, uh, I don't pass. I'm not on staff there because... This ministry, I travel too much, and I'm involved in churches around the, around the country. And, and so I serve as much as I can when I'm there. And then beyond that, I'm in another church somewhere. So with that, we're going to be in 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is writing his last letter, and so he's preparing to die. 
And as he prepares to die, he's going to give some very specific instructions that are very important to him. You know, when you read that person's last, last letter, that's what this is. These are the things that he's now trying to drive home in light of what needs to happen for the cause of the gospel. Now, you remember, Paul, as Saul, was a great persecutor of the church, and God saved him on the Damascus Road. And you guys, in saving Paul, did that change Paul's life? I don't know if you recall some of the words that, that God told Ananias. He said, I will show him, that is Paul, how much he will suffer for my name's sake. Welcome to the family of God. That was, that was his welcome. I will show him how much he will suffer for my name. Well, you know, the apostle Paul did suffer, but he joyfully suffered, glad to identify with his Lord, grateful to be able to suffer even as his Lord suffered. And so in 2 Timothy 2, he's given a charge to Timothy to make sure Timothy is thinking beyond the present and thinking about the future, planning on the future. Paul planned for when he would die. I don't mean planned his funeral. I mean he planned for the ministry. He worked hard to train people for the ministry so that when he died, the ministry didn't die. The ministry was magnified. That's why it's, it's really sad in churches. You know, the churches get a pastor and, and they go along, the pastor dies, and they got to go find one somewhere else. You know, that some other church sent away or something, you know, and bring them in and hope they like it here. It's like, well, if the church is always training people, I find that there's people right here that you can train that would love to be here, that you know, they know you, you love them, they're gifted, just be trained if the churches would just train. So Paul's concerned about that. We've got to think down the road. And so he begins with this personal challenge to Timothy in verse 1 when he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, Matt referred to that this morning at the end of the service. None of us are strong enough for the task. I remember after my son had been in the hospital, he was unconscious on a ventilator. It was just, he looked awful. And, and somebody in the church came to me and said, Rock, it's just so neat that you're so strong. <laughs> like, You have no idea. I cry all the way to the hospital, and I cry all the way home. No, I'm not strong. You're not strong. None of us are strong enough. That's why God extends his grace to us. We're strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That Psalm 46, God is my refuge and strength. Don't ever think you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you're going to be okay. You don't pull yourself up. You cling to the living God. You cling to him, knowing that he alone is sufficient and he will never fail. So, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Understand that what you will accomplish is a work of God in and through your life that's totally undeserved that will be provided in every respect for you to accomplish the work that God has set before you. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, it says, Therefore do not be ashamed 
of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner. You can imagine Paul. I mean, you know, when Paul says, hey, follow my example as I follow Christ, you might go, oh, I don't think so. That's not exactly the life I was planning on. You know, you look at Paul's life, you know, frame that, all the things he did. Those were not on my list of uh, hopefuls. But the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, don't be ashamed of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of me, but join with me in suffering for the gospel. According to the power of God. The one who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Wow. So often that's the introduction to, to the gospel in Scripture. Hey, are you willing to, to join us in suffering? for the cause of the gospel. Are you willing to get hurt? Are you willing to suffer difficult circumstances? You know, when I spoke to the men on Saturday morning, I spoke on the greatest of all commandments. Greatest of all commandments, we love God with a supreme love more than any other person or thing. You know, when I hear somebody say, well, I don't know if I could live without my spouse, it's like, really? Tell me about your God. Because when you start loving somebody more than you love God, then you won't trust God with the people you love. Nor will you love them as you should. The same with children. You say, well, I just don't think I could live without my children. Really? Who's your God? I mean, these are hard sayings. I get that. But I'm asking you, who's your God? Is your child your idol? Or is God your God? Do you... Do you love God so much that you trust him with every other love you have? Whatever that means. Trust. I think a lot of times we come to God with a pretty conditional faith, with expectations. And God says, here's the expectation. Will you join with me in suffering for the gospel? There's the expectation. And then he progresses into verse 2 what I would call generational teaching, faithful men who are able to teach other faithful men. So as you look around this congregation here, uh, we got some senior saints. We've got some kind of middle rangers. And we have some younger men in this congregation. Praise God. Praise God for the diversity. With you. The thing that Paul wants Timothy to understand is that you don't just do the ministry and then die. You train others to do the ministry as well. So when God takes you home, the ministry flourishes because you've equipped those who are gifted in the ways that they need to be equipped to faithfully lead the church. It says the things which you have heard, which you have heard from me. So that is the things which Timothy has heard from Paul in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So there's really four generations. There's Paul teaching Timothy, Timothy teaching faithful men, and those faithful men teaching other faithful men. That's how we pass down the treasure of the word of God and the ministry to the saints. It's by training. And, and I will say, 
and, and again, I'll repeat this. I'm not an anti-seminary guy, but what I am anti is the church not being primarily responsible to train men and women for ministry. And I mean men for pastoral ministry and missions. Women, I think, could be trained for missions and certainly need to be trained biblically, theologically, to be able to properly disciple women in the context of the church. I think that's essential. we got to think down the road. What do we want this church to be like in a few years? How well do we want these young men to be theologically equipped? So today, oftentimes, and I'm speaking generically, okay, because I don't know everybody in here well, all right, but I travel all over the place and meet with churches all the time. But, but I, I would say oftentimes with, with those who are, you know, when we need an elder, <laughs> we've we got to wait for somebody old enough to be an elder but then we have to theologically train them because they're not really theologically equipped to function as elder. You know, you understand that an elder is also a pastor, right? That's the same name. You understand that you can call any one of your elders in this church pastor. It's the same role. One's doing it vocationally. The other ones are bivocational. Okay. And, and so when, when we think of, of the importance of, of that role of eldership, and leadership or pastoral responsibility, these are the men then that train others to be able to fulfill that role. That happens in the life of the church. You can use other resources to help, but you cannot send somebody away and think the church has fulfilled its task. You just can't do that. And, and I've said it, but, but you guys, sadly, most pastors never train another man to be a pastor in their whole life. That's what this is talking about. Faithful men train faithful men to be faithful men. This is the church that we're talking about. Now, okay, so the responsibility is to look around and say, okay, we, we've got some senior saints. You know, we've got some elders. We, we've got teachers here. How do we begin to systematically teach those who are younger serious obedience, serious Bible knowledge, theology? You can learn that in the church. I mean, as a church, we ought to be able to defend our doctrinal statement, right? If I ask you, why do you believe the Trinity? You ought to be able to open your Bible, walk me verse by verse, and show me. Well, believe it because the church does. Ask Matt. Uh, Christians, we need to know what we believe and be able to defend it. It's no wonder that most don't want to share their faith. They can't even defend it. Somebody asked about the basic cardinal doctrines, and so it's important. So now, so how do you find these faithful men? All right, so that's where I'm going to go the rest of this. And I think this can reflect faithful women, okay? But, but I'm focusing on men and the training of men for the leadership in the church, all right? And so what does it look like to find these faithful men? What are the things we're, we, we want them to, to understand and, and issues we want them to grasp? Well, in verse 3, it starts with this. I call it battle ready. Again, he comes back to this whole idea of suffering. He says, suffer hardship with me as a good, good soldier of Christ Jesus. So that's the introduction again. Isn't that interesting? We keep coming back to that. It starts off with suffer hardship with me. And uh, as a good soldier. And, and you guys, when you think about that, I think oftentimes... As Christians, we live like we're in the reserves. You understand what the, the reserves are in military? Where you're in the military and you go for training every so many weeks, but you don't get, unless there's a, a serious event, you don't get called up into active duty. Now, you guys, 
I don't recall the man's name, maybe it was Sam, that was, was called up by the IDF in Israel to go serve. Now, you guys, what do you think the difference is for that man when he's not active, you know, living his life, and then he gets the call? What do you think happens in his heart? That's a big deal. I mean, it's one thing going out on a weekend every now and then and doing all your practicing. But when they put you on a plane and send you over to Israel or in Israel, they take you and they send you into Gaza. They, by the way, you'll be on the front lines. You think a whole lot differently about your role. So when we talk about being a good soldier, you guys, I, I, I mean, when you talk about a good soldier, this is, this is not the reserves. I think too many people act like we're in the Christian reserves, kind of a just in case or if I'm needed. No, 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 we're actually in the battle. If you don't see the battle, maybe you're not in the battle. But Christians are in the battle. 2 Timothy 3.12, it says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I think in our country, people have just reinterpreted that and say, well, I know it says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I understand that if you're living in uh, Iran or Iraq or Afghanistan, but we live in the United States. No, 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 no. It says everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's, we're not uh, avoiding persecution because we live in the United States. It's because we're not in the battle. Because we're not in the battle. We start opening our mouths, sharing the gospel, being bold. You're going to recognize a little bit more of a response. Not always favorable. We've got to be in the battle. And so don't think it's because we live in the United States. If we're not suffering any kind of persecution, it has more to do with the fact that we're not doing our job. We're not doing our job. 1 Timothy 1.18, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. So as we're looking at, at young men that are growing in their love for the Lord, have a desire to honor the Lord, we want to see men who want to be engaged in the battle, who are willing to suffer for the faith who are willing to endure difficult times. You guys realize how many people will say, yeah, I don't go to church anymore because I was in the church and I got hurt. <laughs> and so now I don't obey God. That's, that's great. The church is a difficult place because there's battles. You know, the, the, the Apostle Paul in Acts 20, what did he say? Savage wolves will come in. They will be in your midst. Yeah, it's a tough place. Can you get hurt? So if you get hurt, you quit. Thank God Jesus didn't do that. Hebrews 12 says, consider him, Jesus, who endured such opposition of sinners against himself, lest you grow weary and lose heart. You know, when you start feeling sorry for yourself, I'm speaking to myself as well. I'm just telling you, this is what I do. Think what Jesus endured for you. And then endure, carry on, be willing to suffer in the midst of the fight. And so, on one hand, you got to be battle ready, 
And then the next one is undistracted devotion. It says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Now, you guys, the, I mean, it says, don't get entangled in the affairs of everyday life. In other words, don't be distracted by the mission. Now, there's a lot of ways that can happen. You know, you, you, you know if you see uh, one of these Israeli soldiers going into Gaza, you, you're not seeing them with their phone out playing video games. That would be a very bad idea, right? They cannot be distracted. People are trying to kill them. In fact, it's remarkable how many people in this world hate the Jews. But we know God will fulfill his program. Most Jews today are atheistic, agnostic. But one day, God's going to change hearts. It's going to be an amazing day. But you guys, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. Now, I'm going to use an illustration because I've used it and I think it's helpful, but I'm really tired of it. Because it has to do with COVID. Sorry. Sorry. So during COVID, I still traveled and met with churches. I just left appropriate amount of time between my travels to make sure I didn't carry anything between places. And you know one of the things that was interesting to me? During that time, I saw people, I mean, I watched elder boards split, and I saw churches get into battles over the issues of uh, wear masks, don't wear masks, get a vaccine, don't get a vaccine. Believe me, we're not talking about that. You can ask me where I stand, but I'm not going to tell you. But what I did see is that people who profess Christ, many got passionate and were willing to talk to anybody about their position on the issues with incredible passion. And I never, ever saw them speak about the gospel in such a way. Passionate about politics, talk to anybody about politics, talk to anybody about medicine, talk to anybody about that, and they would just be bold. But I'd never, ever seen that person, ever, even remotely close to passionate like that about sharing the gospel. I was in a church once where I was saying these things, and it was in the midst of it all. And I was saying, listen, don't be more passionate about anything than you are about the gospel, because that's sin. Don't ever be more passionate about anything than the gospel. When I got done, a lady started walking down the aisle. Sometimes we know. I'm thinking this is not going to go well. She made her way down to me, and she started very nice. Appreciate what you said. And then she said, but you know that God created the scientists and gave them their knowledge. And I said, yes, I do, like Darwin. Okay, that's good. I might have stepped over the line. Or just, you know, and she kind of took back. I said, oh, I'm just saying. Let's be careful with what we say. Let's be careful. And then I said, ma'am, let me ask you one question. Just one question. Tell me the last time you shared the gospel with somebody. The response was, I'm not an orator like you. 
said, that was not my question. My question was, when was the last time you shared the gospel with anybody? And she said, well, you slapped my hand. I said, that's not the point. I'm telling you, we have what we know is absolute truth in this book. God has given it to us. This is what we are to be passionate about. This, you guys, COVID, it's just another avenue to share the gospel. It's just another avenue to share the gospel. Mind you, God can use a little bug to get the whole world's attention. My word, wait till he really wants to get our attention. We must not be distracted. You know, those of you that watch too much news, shut it off. I mean, you can read enough news. If you just read, if you just read 10 minutes, you got enough for the day. Really, it just doesn't take that long. When you listen to the same stuff over and over and over again, it affects your spirit. Don't be distracted. They're not going to win. God's got it figured out. God will accomplish his plan. Don't get caught up with what they're doing, what they're saying. It doesn't matter. What matters is what we're saying and how we're engaging with our culture about the gospel. Because we have to be careful. I think Christians can be so easily distracted from the mission and get passionate about all kinds of other things that have no eternal value. And I do think that's the enemy's tool, isn't it? It's not necessarily to get us engaged in just all kinds of willful sin. It's just getting us occupied, our mind and our thoughts with things that are not of eternal value, being distracted. In Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you're familiar with these when it says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. But the next verse, right? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now listen to this, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you understand that, that for those of you who have come to faith in Christ, that in eternity past, God determined all the work that he wanted you to accomplish in this life for his glory. All of that has been preordained. What God intends you to accomplish in your ministry life while you're on this earth. And so for me, like when I, when I watched my wife go into the presence of the Lord, I knew she was done and finished well, but I knew I wasn't. And, and this verse means a lot to me because you guys, I, I'm not just living until the day I die. What, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm, by God's grace, it's my prayer. I'm striving to accomplish the work that God ordained beforehand that I should walk in knowing that when I finish my last task that he has ordained for me, you know what's going to happen? Go ahead, say it. I'm going home. I'm going home. You see, I, un I understand that the objective is to finish the work that God has ordained for me. That's what I need to be about. And so, and that happens in lots of contexts, right? With my wife, it was in a, uh, you know, I mean, she was in bed much of the last few years of her life and, and we were in the hospitals all the time, and so the ministry was wherever we were at. That ministry can change, but, but it's ordained beforehand that God has said we should accomplish those works. And, and so, and even, you know, sometimes somebody will ask me, well, well what about, why would God let so-and-so live 
when they not even functional, they there's no parent, they can't communicate anymore, and they just go on and on and on in that nursing home or wherever it is. And I say, well, you know what? Obviously, they can't speak to have a testimony, but it brings you down there, doesn't it? And so maybe God is extending their life for your ministry in that place. All I know is God's intentional. God's intentional. And we need to fulfill the work. And in order to do that, we need to be careful that we're not distracted from the mission that we're on. That we're not distracted. We need to be battle ready, undistracted, and then submissive. Now, in verse 5, it says, also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Now, this is kind of an interesting one to me to try to sort out, and I'll give you some thoughts. First of all, you know, within the athletic world, this may be a shock to you, but that people cheat all the time at every level of competition. You understand that? It's remarkable. So so back, now, these are, some of these are a little dated because I'm dated, but... Uh, Spain won the gold medal at the 2000 Paralympics, Paralympics for basketball. But they were eventually stripped of their title after it was found out that 10 out of the 12 players on the team did not, did not qualify as disabled. You know why? Because the 10 players deliberately failed an IQ test, which allowed them to play. Brilliant. Really. I mean, think about that. Aye, aye, aye. Rosie Ruiz won the 1980 Boston Marathon, but was stripped of the title after it was discovered she left the race, took the subway, and got back in remarkable time. <laughs> many of you know about Lance Armstrong, won the Tour de France how many times? He was doping the whole time. The whole time. Some of you would remember 1994 figure skater Nancy Kerrigan was attacked by a man with a baton and was forced out of the 1994 U.S. Figure Skating Championship. Who did it? The culprit was sent by a rival skater, Tanya Harding's husband. Yeah, we'll get you to win. Break that other girl's legs. I mean, that's, I know some of you are competitive, but that, I'm just saying that's going over the top. New Orleans Saints, remember this? They didn't gamble on winning and losing. They actually offered financial incentives for their players to intentionally hurt other players. They would be awarded for causing significant injuries so that they would have an advantage in the game. Wow. Wow. And so when I look at this, I say, well, okay, okay, sis. If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. So I'm thinking, well, what does this have to do with the Christian life? Because here's the truth. You can't cheat the Christian life. But you can think you can. In other words, it's easy to read about the Christian life. And it's easy to give an impression that you are somebody that you're not. You know, in Proverbs 15, 3, it says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching both the evil and the good. So I, I tell people all the time, and, and please listen to me, because, you know, the moral failure that happens in the churches, it's just incredible. It's awful. I mean, Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul says, These things ought not even to be named among you as is proper among the saints. 
And I used to counsel people, scores of people would come in, and all kinds of moral failure. And it's like, listen, do you not understand? You are never in private. Hello? You think because your wife's not there? You think because your parents are not that you're in private? You, are never, you have a heavenly audience like you have no idea. No idea. Don't ever think you're alone. You have an audience. I promise you, you have an audience. And you think it's bad to face your wife or your kids to face your parents? You will face God. And you won't trick him. You can deceive everybody else, but you will never deceive him. You know, in Matthew 7, it, in, I'm sure you've heard this, but it, it says some profound things when it says, Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Because those are profound words. And I, I actually think that these are spoken uh, in, in part at least to sound Bible teaching churches. And this is why I think that. When it continues, it says, uh, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, floods came, winds blew, slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. The other one, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Rain fell, floods came, winds blew, and slammed against that house, and it fell. Great was its fall. So both of them knew the exact same truths. Do you see that? They both have the same theology. But one obeyed it and one did not. But they both called Jesus Lord. Lord is master. If he's your master, you're his slave. That means you submit to him. That means you obey him. And you guys, it's a dangerous thing because if I... If I did this, I, and I'm just going to be brief, but don't respond, okay? But if I just ask you a series of questions and said, okay, what is a believer's responsibility towards the word of God? For those who love God, and when I say those who love God, that's Christians. That's what I'm talking about, right? Uh, and so I say, what's the responsibility to the word of God? Well, it's to read it, study it, meditate on it, right? To practice it. It's to invest well in it. It's to treasure the word of God. We know that, okay? So we can answer the question. Or if I said, what's our responsibility to the unsaved? You could answer that. I know this, we need to share. They need to hear the gospel. And, that, and we can do that. We can, talk, we can talk about role in the church. What's a believer's role? And we can answer that. But answering it is not indicative of whether you're saved. See, for some people, answering that question is a self-condemnation. Because they know the truth. But they don't submit to it. They know, if you will, the rules. They know what God has said. They know what God wants. They know how the Christian life is supposed to play out. And they can tell you how it's supposed to play out. And I think it's easy to assume that because I can say how it plays out, that that's going to satisfy God when I stand before him. But truly, a person who's in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're a new person in Christ. New priorities, new passions. I'm not saying you get it all perfect. I'm not saying that. But it is a direction of your life. It's important to understand that. I think some of the most 
astounding verses in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to 6 say, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self. Listen to those lists. Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Is that a list? You know what the next phrase says? Holding to a form of godliness. Like what? <laughs> Did you hear that list? One sin after another sin after another sin, holding to a form of godliness. In other words, these very people would say they're Christians. We hear that today all the time with people who are just living in absolute disobedience to God. And then it says, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. What's that power? It's the life-changing power of the gospel. And so they want you to think they're a Christian, but their lives have not been transformed. And so listen, you guys, it's not our place to create our own convenient Christianity. You know, like I want a Christianity without the suffering. I mean, that's a contradiction. Our Lord made that clear, you know, and, and he, he says, Beloved, why are you surprised at the suffering among you? So some strange things happen to people. This is part of the Christian life. So we, we must not create what we want Christianity to be. Like church is a convenience. I, you know, to, I go when it's convenient. No, no, no. Read Ephesians 5. Christ died for the church. Christ loves the church. When you became a Christian, you were baptized into the body of Christ, which is the church. The church is not a convenience. It's essential in the Christian life. And so when we talk about the athlete and the rules, we must think about Christianity and how God has designed it, what God intends, how he instructs us, and then we need to respond appropriately. Well, the next one is, you know, we've got to be battle-ready, undistracted devotion. We need to be submissive. We need to, to follow the guidelines that God's word has given to us. And then it says the hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crop. Now, this is like the best place in the world to have this verse. All right? I mean, I come from the city where, where uh, unfortunately, I think many kids actually think the meat is produced in the back room of the grocery store. The city. Okay? They'd probably be shocked to come out and see what actually goes on, what it takes to grow the crops, to raise the food. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. MacArthur says hardworking means to labor to the point of exhaustion. Ancient farmers worked long hours of backbreaking labor under all kinds of conditions with the hope that their physical effort would be rewarded by a good harvest. Well, there's men in this church and women in this church that do back-breaking work, that work long, hard days in the hope of having good crop. And it's been really dry. And dry makes life tough. And so it's complicated. And when you work the land, you understand if God doesn't provide what you need, 
by way of rain, you're very limited with what you can do. You know that if you don't do the work in planting and preparing the soil, you are not going to have a good crop. You are diligent in your work. Some of you are generational. In fact, those that are here are probably maybe most all, if not all, generational farmers. And so your families, decade after decade, have worked tirelessly to keep that farm going and make it successful. It doesn't happen by accident. Lazy, lazy farmers eventually are not farmers, right? But he uses that as an example of what it's going to take for our men to grow up and to serve the Lord well, to be the faithful men that we need to train. Second Timothy 2.15, it says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. You know, there's no room in the ministry for laziness. None. You guys understand. You, you know that, that Matt works on other days besides Sunday? You would be amazed how many people have no idea the work of ministry, the labor of study, the dealing with the most complicated issues in people's lives, going from one home where you rejoice with people to the other home where you just mourn with them. Now, it's a hard task. It's a good task, but it's a hard task. It's not for the lighthearted, the faint-hearted. It's not for the lazy or the undisciplined. If we're going to treat Praying faithful men, we must have men. And I'm looking at you guys. We must have men. Some of you young men, we need you to be diligent, to be able to pay or willing to pay whatever price is necessary to be everything that God would have you to be. And it's not an easy road, but it's a good road. It's a glorious road. Galatians 6, 8, and 9, it says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due time we will reap. We do not grow weary. We've got to stay the course. Hebrews 10, 36, You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. It's work, but it's good work. Then the Lord says, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And so it's just a reminder. Think of these things. Think what it means to be a faithful man. Think what it means then to equip men who are faithful men so that they can serve well in the life of the church. I mean, wouldn't it be glorious as every generation goes on to be with the Lord that you see these younger generations coming up strong and committed and focused and determined to lead? You know, so often... Older people look at the church and say, oh, what's going to happen? And I say, well, let's train that what happens is all that God wants to happen. Let's equip. Let's invest well. The other thing we need is to be gospel-oriented. And So we've seen a bunch of illustrations, and now we see our supreme example. In verse 8, it says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. In other words, he's saying these are the things that you need. You've you, you got to, to 
be focused, undistracted, diligent, determined, do it the way God says. You know, you, you got to be a good soldier. But at the end of the day, remember Jesus. Remember the Savior. It's all about Jesus and his glory. It's about worshiping and serving the one who is our master. You know, the Apostle Paul said, I, I'm not ashamed in Romans 116 of the gospel. It's a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Hebrews 12, I quoted three earlier, but verse two says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy, listen to this, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And then it said, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Then it continues, for consider him who has endured such hostility of sinners against himself, lest you grow weary and lose heart. And then in verse 9, the apostle Paul says, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. I love that because, you know, the apostle Paul, and I, I've mentioned this, but the apostle Paul, you guys, he's endured intense suffering. And he's in prison, and the religious leaders have contributed that. The Romans have contributed that. But you guys, at the end of the day, he really gives credit to Jesus for putting him in jail. He calls himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, you guys, we typically want to blame wicked people. Oh, they did this. They did. You guys, if God uses wicked people, it's to get you where he wants you to be. They're not in control. You hear me? If God uses wicked people to do bad things against you, God is going to use them to get you where he wants you to be. And he will accomplish his purposes in your life. Don't give them credit. At the end of the day, if they do things wicked, God will judge them for that. He'll take care of that. But don't think they're thwarting God's plan for your life. They are a part of fulfilling God's plan for your life. may not be comfortable, nonetheless. I mentioned this morning, Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brethren, Paul says, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. You guys, this is the man who five times received the Jews, 39 lashes, three times was beaten with rods, once was stoned, three times was shipwrecked, night and a day, spent in the deep, been on frequent journeys, dangerous from rivers, dangerous from robbers, dangerous from my countrymen, dangerous from the Gentiles, dangerous in the city, dangerous in the world. It goes on and on and on. And he says, if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father, the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. The Apostle Paul was willing to endure anything for the sake of the gospel. And if we're going to train guys, we need to find guys that are going to be able to teach because we're going to teach faithful men how to teach faithful men. They have to be battle ready. They are undistracted in their devotion. They're submissive to the word. They're diligent. They're gospel oriented. They're willing to endure anything to accomplish the mission. I hope and I pray that that is a bunch of you. I hope and I pray that this is a picture of a bunch of people in this room that will say, I want to be trained. I want to be faithful. I want to be focused. I want to serve my master. And I'm willing to endure anything 
that he would be glorified. That's our mission. And it's a glorious one. When we're done, we're going home. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. Thanks for your patience with us. Thanks for being so kind to give us such detailed instructions. Thanks for giving to us your grace, knowing that this would be impossible for any of us, apart from your grace and your Holy Spirit and your word. Heavenly Father, there's no doubt that there would be those in this room that want to be these faithful servants. Lord God, I pray that whatever stage of life or age they're at, that they would determine to set a course to walk in a manner that pleases you, that they would submit to training, to equipping, so that they could become um, just well-trained for the task ahead. Lord, I pray that you'd raise up young people who would love you and love the church and love your word and have the courage to stand up unashamed of the gospel. Lord God, I thank you for the faithfulness of so many in this church, and I just pray that it would be multiplied. And Lord, as churches are failing all around the world, I pray that this church would be a training church and a planting church so that we're adding churches that are faithful, godly, God-honoring churches. And Lord, we'll just be excited for all that you accomplish and grateful, so grateful that you're willing to use us in the process. I pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.